0: ted audio collective got a business problem there's a ted talk for that stay updated on everything business on ted business a podcast hosted by columbia business school professor modupe akinola every week she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work answering questions like how do four-day work weeks work do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on Ted Business wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: When I was in middle school, a young writer named Jeff Zaslow moved in across the street. A few years earlier, Jeff had been assigned to write a story for The Wall Street Journal about the contest to replace the great advice columnist, Ann Landers. On a lark, Jeff decided to enter the contest himself. When an interviewer told him he was underqualified, he fired back, well, I may be 28, but I have the wisdom of a 29-year-old. Jeff got the job. He went on to give sage advice for decades, in his columns and in moving books, like The Last Lecture with Randy Pausch. When I was thinking about writing my first book, I was really struggling with how to frame the idea. I needed advice, so I called Jeff And he gave me exactly the guidance I needed. A few months later, tragedy struck. Jeff lost his life in a car accident. He never got to give his last lecture. And he never got to pick a successor to his advice column. But I have a strong hunch about who Jeff would have chosen. The author of the wildly popular advice column, Dear Sugar.
0: I didn't much read advice columns. I had never taken a class in psychology or any of those things that you'd think about people who give advice do. And I'd never even gone through therapy myself.
1: For two years, she wrote it anonymously. Then, four days after Jeff died, the author revealed herself.
0: My name is Cheryl Strayed, and I'm a writer.
1: You might know Cheryl as the mega bestselling author of Wild. In the movie, she was played by Reese Witherspoon and is the co-host of the podcast Dear Sugars. Cheryl gives advice with rare humanity and humility and humor. If Jeff were alive, I think he'd say she has the wisdom of several 29-year-olds. I'm Adam Grant, and this is a bonus episode of Work Life, my podcast with TED. Sponsored by Accenture, Bonobos, Hilton, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Our work lives are full of dilemmas. We're constantly giving advice and seeking it, too. Which job offer to take? When to quit? Whether to blow the whistle on a bad boss? I've admired Cheryl Strayed's advice for a long time. So I asked her how we can all suck a little less at something that matters so much in our work lives.
0: I I did not know much about giving advice. I never, I never sought to be a person who did that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So I'm curious, how did you become a professional advice giver?
0: I'm kind of bossy and always have been, but that's different than giving advice. It really was just a kind of one of those chance things that happens and suddenly you you find yourself down a new path. I had just finished the first draft of Wild and sent it off to my editor when I received an email from an acquaintance. And he had been writing this advice column called Dear Sugar for a website called The Rumpus. He said, you know, I don't want to do it anymore. Nobody reads the column. It pays nothing, uh, meaning zero. He didn't mean that hyperbolically. It pays actually nothing. And do you want to take it over? Because I just have a feeling you'd be perfect for it, is what he said to me. And I and I said yes. And I immediately then thought, what am I doing? You know, I, I had never given advice and then as I went along, what I found is I was wrong about not being prepared. I, I had actually been preparing all my life in my, in my work as a writer because I'd been contemplating the human condition pretty deeply for, for a couple decades by then. And so in the Dear Sugar column, that's what I did is I really just decided to, to share everything I knew as a writer, everything I knew about what it means to be human as both a human and a writer.
1: Well, you do it beautifully, but I was surprised to hear you say that you've always been bossy.
0: <laughs> I was never shy about saying I'm ambitious. And, you know, not ambitious in a way that, like, I want to take things from other people or in a competitive way, but but rather I want to be a really powerful and good force in the world. And I've always had that clarity. I don't know how I got to be that way. Like, I don't know why I was born that way and... My sister wasn't, for example. I don't know how I am what, the way I am. I don't know why um, I have that sense, that kind of core confidence.
1: I I think that's actually potentially good news. Uh, there's a there's a recent study that I love by Tasha Yurik, who showed that people who are highly self-aware don't spend a lot of time psychoanalyzing how they got that way. Right. Like, well, you know, it could be genetic. It could be you know <laughs> something in my upbringing. But it doesn't really matter how I got that way. The question is, how can I use it for good?
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's, I, love, I love that idea of, you know, you know, whatever it is we are, how do we use it for good? What I always hope to do as a writer in whatever form I was writing in is, is to really make people feel more human and make people feel more alive and more, you know, less alone, more connected to people around them, all, all of those things, to feel beauty in their lives. I admire that, and I have
1: to say, it's something I've I've recently become aware I've struggled at, and in in the last few years, I've I've become aware that sometimes I've given people just horrible career advice. Um, I encouraged one student to take a job, uh, and she had a near emotional breakdown. Uh, it was such a miserable experience. Uh, I tried to talk another student into uh, going abroad, and uh, he hated it so much that I don't know, I don't know if he'll ever talk to me again. <laughs> And I'm wondering how you know when you're qualified to give advice in the first place.
0: Well, I want to answer that question. But first, I want to say I think you're wrong. I think, I think that you're wrong that you gave bad advice. And, and here's why. Life is a long game, right? And we don't know, actually, what those experiences are will mean over time to those people. The person who lived abroad and hated it learned a lot. The person who took the job that she maybe shouldn't have taken because she, you know, had a breakdown learned something from that experience. And and sometimes, you know, we're 10 years out and we look back and we say, oh, that bad experience, that thing I shouldn't have done is the very reason I'm here right now in exactly the right place. And that has happened To me, over and over again in my life, I'm going to guess it's happened to you as well. It's happened to all of your listeners. You know, we learn those lessons. We learn the hard way. We never forget. And they very often, you know, we we get to the right destination by walking down the wrong trail many times over and over. As to your question about what qualifies somebody to give advice, there's no such thing, I think, as as a qualified advice giver. I think that we need to shift... Uh the perception um, from the person giving advice to the person receiving it. I, I always think that we have a responsibility when we seek wisdom from others uh, to seek it from any sources and take from all those sources what, what makes the most sense to us.
1: Well, I think that in some ways lets those of us who give, off, give advice off the hook, right? <laughs> because, you know, if, if I can't predict where my advice is going to send you, and I can't tell if my advice is good or not, then I'm okay to just give it to anyone at any time. You have to to believe that there's a difference between good and bad advice, don't you?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, which is a different question than if you're qualified. Bad advice has its own agenda, right? So, you know, I don't want you to do this because I don't want you to do this. I, I think where people overstep is there's a difference between having values and holding judgment, about a path that somebody is taking. Where where do you think Adam you went wrong with these people? Is it do you think that you actually gave bad advice or are you just sad that the outcomes weren't what you hoped?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I'm definitely sad that the outcomes were were distressing. Yeah. In both cases. Um, And, you know, I worry even if it benefits them 10 years down the road that that that's just cognitive dissonance rearing its ugly head. And they'll somehow find a way because we're such good rationalizing creatures of, you know, of justifying the horrible experience. Kind of like, well, fraternity hazing must have been good for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have suffered through it. (laughs) Right. There's that.
0: But I would never advise anyone to join a fraternity. Would you?
1: (laughs) Neither would I. I'm with you there. (laughs) But... You know, there's something interesting that you alluded to a a moment ago when we were talking about the, you know, the question of why my advice was potentially bad. And I, I didn't know this until now, but I feel like advice needs to be personalized in order to be useful. Yeah. And you have had this really interesting role where you give advice to complete strangers. Right. And I'm curious about how you deal with that in general and specifically, I, I noticed that one of the things you do is you share your own experiences. I've always shied away from that um, because sociologists often talk about what they call conversational narcissism. Right. Where, you know, someone says, oh, I'm really sad that my grandpa just died. And you're like, oh, I totally know how you feel. My cat just threw up. Yeah. It was really sad. And you don't you do not do this in a narcissistic way, though. There's, there's something that you do when you share personal anecdotes. That's helpful, and that doesn't make the conversation about you. And so, I'm wondering if you could explain how that works.
0: Yeah, it's it's absolutely something I thought about a lot before I decided to start using stories from my own life uh, in the column. It's a very careful balance. Um, what what happened in my mind is this: when I have had the deepest Eras of suffering in my life, the deepest sorrows, heartbreaks, my grief, you know, struggles, all of those things. The place that I've turned is to books. I have found that reading about the lives of others, the ways that other people have loved and lost and lifted themselves up again, have been really consoling to me, really illuminating to me. They they made me feel less alone. They, they lit a path. They made me think about possibilities. And so I really just wanted to do that with my with my stories, you know. And so the stories available to me in my advice giving were the, the, the things that I'd lived through, the things that I'd witnessed and seen and felt. And so that's, you know, that's what I tried to do uh, it, it, in the Dear Sugar column, that's what I... I mean, I believe in the power of story. That's what we mean, I think, when we use that phrase. The power of story is the is the way that we can actually feel less alone because somebody has shared their life with us.
1: That, that makes a ton of sense. And I think it, it actually makes a huge difference just to hear you say, here's why I'm telling you the story.
0: So, like, and the key difference there, too, is... When when I tell a story in the sugar column, you'll notice I always we the point of it always is the letter writer. We always wind back to the letter writer. When you're in conversation with somebody who's, you know, d- does that thing of like, oh, let me tell you about me, is it never comes back to the to, to the speaker or you know to the original speaker? It it's always then it's the difference between. You know, taking a detour that that leads you um, around and then back to the main road (laughs) and, you know, going going off in an entirely different direction that never returns and makes and makes the, you know, makes us feel really alone and and abandoned. Um, So, you know, I never in the sugar column, it was always the point of the story was always, I want you to know that I have deeply heard you and I'm going to try to offer you the best help I can um, by 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 telling you a story that might comfort you.
1: That resonates for me a lot. And I've always wondered if that's because, you know, we have such a hard time predicting the future that, you know, it's easier to kind of delegate responsibility to somebody else for making our choices. And that way we don't have to kind of blame ourselves if it turns out to be a mistake. I also wonder if if part of what's going on there is that it's, it's a little bit like it reminds me of, uh, of something Danny Kahneman once told me. Uh, so, you know, he's a psychologist, wins the Nobel Prize in economics for his groundbreaking work on decision heuristics and biases. And then a reporter asks him, how do you make important decisions in your life? And Danny says, well, it's simple. I, uh, I take the, the final two options. I assign one heads, the other tails. <laughs> I flip a coin. And then I observe my own emotional reaction. And if I don't like it, I flip again until I get the result that I didn't know I wanted.
0: Right. Yeah. And
1: I w- I wonder I wonder if sometimes we need that external source whether, you know, it's a coin toss or whether it's it's, you know, an advice columnist. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, to just reinforce what we think we're seeing but we're not totally clear on it. What do you think?
0: Sometimes when you really have a dilemma, part of what you need to do is not about so much making a decision about the right the right thing to choose is is to accept the fact that with that choice, you're going to lose something you want. Because, of course, real dilemmas involve loss, and they, they ask us to to really practice acceptance, to say, you know, I want both things. My husband and I did this. Um, uh, we have two kids who are 13 and 15. But when our kids were, you know, like toddlers, we really went through this thing. We were like, okay, do we want a third child? And we had made all the, you know, these lists and these long conversations and went on walks. And w- w- what the truth was at the end of the day is that either choice would be a loss. Either choice would be wonderful. And we had to just simply decide to accept accept one of them. We decided to just stay with two kids. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I didn't really strongly part of me want a third child, you know? I mean, and, and to really just get comfortable with... Acceptance is the key, I think.
1: What, what I think is so powerful about that is with acceptance, I guess with acceptance comes a willingness to let go of an option. Yeah. And say, you know, I'm, I'm going to close that door. How, how do you get comfortable doing that?
0: You know, it's that's a hard one. I mean, I don't know that, that comfort is the word I would use. I think that it's actually the opposite, that you embrace, you have to embrace the the truth that our lives, even our good, happy, vibrant, whole lives involves some some discomfort and some sorrow and some letting go and some regret. Um, you know, sometimes something as strong as regret. Like, well, if I could go back, I would have done this the other way, you know. And it's okay. It's okay to have that be a fact of your life. And so to me, acceptance is is about being able to carry and hold the things that are uncomfortable.
1: Well, you you had the great, I think, fortune that you're responding to people who ask for advice. Yeah. And one of the things that really bothers me is when people give unsolicited advice. Right. <laughs> I'm curious about whether you think it's ever appropriate to give unsolicited advice, and if so, how to do it well.
0: Pretty much never, um, I mean, you know, in life-threatening situations, but you know, really, it's generally <laughs> a bad idea, and it is because you know it, it puts people on the defensive, um, because unsolicited advice is nothing more than basically somebody walking up to you and saying, "You're doing it wrong," and and I know the right way to do it, and so you know, even if you're right, it, it's it's very hard to receive that well, but I'm I'm very careful with that.
1: You've kind of been the beneficiary of it, though, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. There are times where we do have to intervene um, in other people's lives. And boy, I've been on both sides of that situation, right? I've had people who could see things uh, around, see things about me um, that, that really it was pretty important that they share with me, um, that this is not the right thing to do. Like When I was justifying using heroin, quote unquote, recreationally, and I had a friend um, and, and also my ex-husband saying to me, you're insane. Like, you're not thinking clearly. There is no such thing as this being a light, you know, fun, mid-90s experience. And they were right. You know, <laughs> I couldn't see that then. And, and of course, so yeah, I mean, I've been in that situation with friends, too. The category of unsolicited advice, it goes beyond that, because what you're really doing is intervening so that somebody may save their life.
1: Yeah, it might be life-threatening in some cases. In other cases, it's at least significantly life-damaging. Yeah, and So you, right. you would say in that situation, you feel a responsibility at least to speak up.
0: Yeah, and I think, too, that that's a different level. You know, there's a difference between giving advice and, and telling the truth. And, you know, one of the things that can be really hard to say to somebody you love, but, but I think it's really necessary to say it, is I think, I think you're in trouble. You know, I think you you have a trouble with your you have a problem with drugs or alcohol like that's truth telling Um, because, of course, advice is like and then here are all the things you should do because of that. Like, I think there's a powerful kind of bearing witness quality of the deepest advice where we simply say the truth about what we see. And those are really, you know, hard things to say and they're hard things to hear. But the times in my life when when somebody has loved me enough to do that have been life-changing.
1: Well, this goes to a paradox that I'm a big fan of as a psychologist and uh, also kind of a hater of as a human being. because It's it's made my life really difficult in a bunch of ways. Uh, So in psychology, it's called Solomon's Paradox. And the idea is that we often give better advice to others than we take for ourselves. Right. What do you think is going on there?
0: <laughs> this is so clear to me and so much part of of my, my life. But of course, what happens is, you know, I'm still a person. And I very often have to remind myself to take my own advice.
1: Me too. And I think one of the other things, at least there, there's a little bit of research supporting this, is that when, when we have to make decisions for ourselves, we tend to look at all of the criteria.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, I might make an Excel spreadsheet with, you know, 22 different factors and then try to, you know, create some kind of complicated equation where each one has a weight and then I don't like the results, so I change the weights and then I don't like it again. And, and when we give advice to other people, we tend to just zoom in on the, the one or two or three most important factors. Right. And just weigh the options on those.
0: Well, and usually we don't even know all the factors right we don't know the other factors with with other people that's but with right. ourselves we know ourselves too well yeah
1: we have too much information about ourselves to make good decisions that's really interesting i think you're right yeah i'm curious then when, when you think about taking your own advice do you try to forget things about yourself do you try to put yourself you know in in more of the advice giving frame of mind how do you how do you overcome that paradox
0: yeah i mean i think the way i experience it in my life i think that there is always running inside me the true thing and then the truest thing. So for example, one thing that I'm really, really struggling with lately a lot is I'm I'm working on my next book and it's hard. And I feel terrible and I feel afraid and I feel like I can't do it. And I feel like all kinds of self, self-loathing self and fear and shame and, you know, all, all the bad things. I feel all the bad things, right? But what I also do is I often give other people writing advice. I teach writing. And I'm always spouting off about, how you know you can't let those negative emotions rule you. They're not true anyway. It's none of your business uh what other people think of your work. Your your job is just to simply sit down and do the work. We all feel bad about our writing at times and you, you simply cannot allow that that voice in your head to win. Um you know on and on and on. So you know yeah, these I, these <laughs> I
1: hate her by the way. <laughs> she sounds like a horrible person. I know,
0: but the thing is is she's she's right. Okay. So so the true thing is I feel ashamed and afraid. That's, that's true. Like That's an, an actual true thing, I feel. The truer thing is that this is just part of the way it feels to write, and that if I simply do the work, as, as that best version of myself keeps telling other people to do, if I simply do the work and trust in that process, as I have time and time again with my previous books, it's going to be okay. So the truest thing is, do the work, it's going to be okay. You know, you asked, how do I manage this paradox in my, inside myself? You know, I, I say, to, I just remind myself, I say, you know, trust the truest thing. The truest thing, the truest thing always loves you. The truest thing always is for you. And, and the truest thing also will not deny the negative aspects of what it is you're trying to undertake. And so it's, you know, to sit a, here again, we're back at acceptance, to actually sit with the paradox, to say like, yeah, you know, I don't always take my, my own advice. I know what the right thing to do is. I don't always do it. To actually embrace that, to make that part of your evolution toward that better version of yourself.
1: I think that's uh, that's a really helpful way to think about it, uh, because I think it it allows for it allows for some mistake making without you know, necessarily beating ourselves up, uh, which is a, a great path towards self-compassion.
0: It is. But let, let me ask you this, Adam. <laughs> I think the way that you and I try to be good people good people and evolved people and we try to help other people be good people and evolve people like is is there an end of the road like like <laughs> i mean like what if i what if i become my like my best version of myself like will there be a day or is it is it just always going to be ongoing
1: i i hope it's always ongoing cuz i think that the best version of yourself is the one that's always looking for a better version of yourself
0: ooh that's good that's good okay
1: well one of the things i've i've been kind of grappling with lately is I guess it's the flip side of a dynamic we were talking about earlier, which is there are times when I feel like I give advice that I know is helpful. And it's usually when when someone is leaning toward making a career decision that's based on what I know are going to be the wrong factors in the long run. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like they, you know, they choose a a much more miserable job solely because of prestige. Right. Right. Sometimes what happens is I'll, you know, I give the advice, I'll say, "Look, I've I've seen I've had this co- version of this conversation 19 times." Uh, in all 19, the person is called 4 months later and said, "You know, you were right. I really regretted this decision. Please be more forceful with the next person in my shoes so that they don't end up, you know, making the same error." Right. And inevitably what happens in, in I think it's happened every time so far is The person then follows up with me and says, you know, thank you for your advice, uh, but I'm going with the prestigious option anyway. Mm. Do do you, first of all, do you ever have that experience, too, of being frustrated that somebody ignored what you knew was good advice for them?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's why there's that phrase, I told you so. There's something exasperating. About the person who's like, I told you so. You know, it's both satisfying to some small degree, but mostly it's not. You know, sadly, most of us have to learn by doing.
1: When I was in high school, one of my classmates got into Harvard and Stanford and agonized over it for months. And then after the decision deadline, he finally committed to Stanford. He changed his mind. And he went back and said, is it too late to undo the decision? And I look at that and think anybody who lives in a world where they think <laughs> there's a prestige difference between Harvard and Stanford is insane, right? <laughs> that that That's a subjective hierarchy, not an objective hierarchy. And so right. I, I've been trying to figure out how do I get that kind of distinction through to people? Because I find very often the, the dilemmas that people come for advice on are those kinds of dilemmas where... You know the the options are either both so good or or both you know so ambiguous that there isn't a right answer, and yet they're they're kind of looking for one. Do right. you have advice on how to navigate that kind of advice situation?
0: Yeah, no, I mean that's it's really fascinating there too, like that that con, that kind of conundrum, because that is really very much where you have to do that thing you mentioned earlier, like that, you know, highly personalized advice that to the extent that that is possible, these schools are basically the same when it comes to the external factors. And so then what's true is the only thing that matters when it comes to making a choice is those internal factors. Do you... Do you want to live in California or Boston? You know, do you want to? I mean, honestly, you know, is there a, a like like those kinds of things? You know, what it, what is the feeling you get about um a place? You know, trusting your intuition, um, rather than you know, like in some ways, you know, casting aside those objective measurements. And and I think that that's the thing um, that people have really the hardest time doing is trusting. the the internal measurements, because that is about trusting yourself. That is about saying, um, you know, outside of what society says is good or bad, um, I'm asking myself, what what do I want? Trusting um, your own preferences and desires and inclinations, very difficult thing. Most people have to go on a long journey um, to get there. And most people aren't equipped to do that when they're 18 or 19. So, you know, I mean, it's a really impossible thing.
1: Well, I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not alone then in in, in in struggling with that.
0: You know, I had this experience too. It's funny. I, when I applied to graduate school, I I have my MFA in creative writing, and I applied at all these schools, and I was accepted at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, the University of Iowa, which is considered, in my little literary orbit, you know, like the far and away, like the most famous, best school. And not only was I accepted, I was given a full fellowship. And Iowa was so. Uh, sure that that it was the best school that like it didn't even ask me if I was going to accept the offer. It just assumed that I did. It, I mean, I honestly, if you had to say like, what are like the three hardest decisions you've ever made in your life? That would be among them. And it was completely and utterly about this thing you're talking about. It was about prestige. It was about what other people would think of, of me, you know, if I went to Iowa I you know it's an immediate kind of prestige as a writer to say you're an Iowa graduate and and for me to to give that up uh, was enormous. And in the end, I decided to decline Iowa's offer and go to Syracuse University and 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 you know for years I I wondered, did I make the right choice did I and I wondered it even though I had a perfectly wonderful amazing, experience at Syracuse. And and, and in real measurements, you know, I decided to go to Syracuse because I spent hours interviewing the, the students in the program, in both programs, and the students in Iowa were miserable and the students in Syracuse weren't. So, like, I I made a decision based on, like, actual, like, quality, you know, like, people, quality information. People were happier with the program in Syracuse. And I knew I didn't want to work in a competitive atmosphere where everyone resented me before I even walked in the room. You know, when you say, how do you get better at receiving advice? It's about getting it better at trusting your truest values. So maybe the best advice receivers are better not just at listening to what that person who's giving them advice is saying, but listening to themselves.
1: I like that. All right. Last question before I let you go. (laughs) Is is there a piece of advice uh, that you wish you had followed but didn't?
0: Oh, that's a good one. I wish I had known sooner than I knew this, is that even when things seem like they've come apart and all is lost that I'm wrong about that, like that that it's almost impossible to truly ruin your life. And I wish that I had taken that into my heart earlier. You know, I remember a lot of my twenties feeling like there was no going back from, from this bad thing I did, or I made that mistake or I didn't take that opportunity or I wasn't, you know, doing this or that, or my novel wasn't written by the time I was 30 and, oh, what a mess am I. And, and now, you know, and this, I guess, when's us back to that first thing when you said, you felt like you gave t- bad advice to those two people like now i look back at those those things that i saw as kind of you know bad experiences or the the mistakes i made and those are the things that made me and led me here and i'm grateful for them so the, the advice, the, the sort of culture gave me not directly but like that you have to walk a straight path you know a straight and forward path and and it's that's not true you know most of us take a much more winding path and sometimes we you know, fall off the trail entirely, not to use too many trail metaphors. But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, we learn from the jagged way. And um, I'm grateful for that.
1: It reminds me of, of something a mentor once told me, which was that for, for most important decisions, we shouldn't try to make the right decision. We should just try to make the decision right.
0: You know, we I think we need to be a little more generous with ourselves to remember, well, you know, you probably made the best decision you were capable of making at that moment in time. And, you know, our, our older, more evolved selves can, you know, would, would do it differently. But th- that, that person wasn't back there making that decision. Right. And so, um, you know, you got to just kind of go easy on yourself and, and love the life you have.
1: I, uh, I think that's sometimes easier said than done. But you are a master at it. So <laughs> thank you, Cheryl.
0: <laughs> thank you.
1: Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by TED with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Angela Cheng, and Janet Lee. This bonus episode was produced by Jessica Glazer. Our show is mixed by Rick Kwan. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Thanks to our sponsors: Accenture, Bonobos, Hilton, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Thanks to you for listening. If you liked what you heard, rate and review the show. It helps people find us. This bonus episode is in memory of my dear friend, Jeff Zaslow. I want to leave you with a taste of the person he was and the kind of advice he gave.
2: Uh, my middle daughter last year was invited to the homecoming dance at a neighboring high school, and she got a dress, and she got her hair done, and she was very excited. And then the night before, the boy called, and he said, me and the other guys, we've decided the homecoming dance is for nerds. And so we're just going to go and uh, sit in so-and-so's basement and you girls can come. And my daughter was sad. She wanted to wear the dress and go to the dance. And, and, you know, I know what goes on in basements. I'm no idiot as a father. So I thought, what could I do for my sad daughter? And then it hit me. I could embarrass this boy in front of five million readers of the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) So that's what I did. I wrote a column and I told readers, I said, you tell your sons, be honorable, be be men of your word. If you ask her to go to the dance, you take them. And you tell your daughters that if a guy's not treating you right, to heck with him.